This is the Rockonomics Podcast, episode number 34. I'm your host, Dill, and we're happy to have singer Elaine Caswell with us today. Elaine may have missed out on solo artist stardom, but that lack of being a household name has enabled her to have a rich and diverse career. Elaine has lent her extraordinary singing talents to backing up Mick Jagger and Keith Richards at the Concert for New York Benefit for 9-11, as well as for Roger Waters and Eddie Vedder for the 12-12-12 concert benefiting the victims of Hurricane Sandy. And in between these high-profile gigs, her chops can be heard on an impressive array of commercials, TV shows, movies, and more. Elaine and I sat down in an empty hotel conference room the day before she sang back up for Cindy Lauper, and our exchange starts right now. A little bit of the process of some of the gigs you've done. Mm-hmm. So some of the higher profile gigs have been <clears throat> the concert for New York City after 9-11, um, where you worked with, was it was Mick and Keith. Very, that was heavy. Um, <laughs> what, how, does, how does something like that, like what's, what's the process behind that? I mean, that's, that's not something you can rehearse for weeks at a time. Is it kind of thrown together fairly rapidly or am I wrong? Uh, it was pretty much, if I recall, it was the day of or the day before. It was very tight, you know. But we, we you know, we got the songs in advance. It was Salt of the Earth and uh, Missing You, so um, still you got to know what you're doing, you know. Because, right. <laughs> yeah, they, they've done those songs so many times, you don't want to go in and... Uh, and in something like that, is, is there anybody, is it like, you know, it's, everything's happening so quick. Is somebody telling you, like, don't sway during this part or, stay, you know, like, because you notice when, you know, I, I watched some of the videos and I think one, one of them was like uh, Roger Waters. You know, and you guys are all. 12, 12, 12, yeah. You guys are all standing mm-hmm. pretty upright, you know, equally spaced apart. Um, and then after another song, I, I can see you're swaying a bit. But it's, uh, it got me to thinking, like, are you getting direction? Like, uh, at this, you know, don't sway here. Sway at this song. You know, be kind of rigid at this song. You know, no. It, it, I mean, a lot of it is just our sensibility and things that we've we've um, we've you know figured out over the years. You know, and I mean, I was fortunate to be thrown into a group of of some really well seasoned singers when I first started doing studio work in New York. And you learn real fast, you know, mm-hmm. just from watching and paying attention because um, the people that came before, you know, I really looked, admired and looked up to because I'd seen them on in all these record credits and then all of a sudden I'm standing, you know, next to Valerie Simpson and singing a, a commercial. Right. You know, I just about peed my pants. I mean, it's <laughs> like, oh, wait, this is a mistake, you know. Let's get back. Let's so get into. Kind of beautiful. Let's get into a little bit of your your early days. I noticed, and I, this probably isn't where it started, but just. But wait, one other thing I did want to say about that because it is an interesting thing that you brought up. I, not to cut you off, but um, although I just did, <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> but um, I, I did. I worked with Bette Midler too, so I was. I, she made me a harlot for a little while, and when you work with someone like her, it's very specific. Okay. Very specific, because a lot of it was choreographed by, by Tony Basil. And I'm not a dancer, so I had to learn all these moves, plus all those like tight Andrew sisters harmonies, and coordinate all that. And it was two separate shows, so that was very stressful for me. But so people like that, it can be that specific. Sure. And then other times it's very loose. But like on television, most of us that get called for those gigs, we just know you keep it tight because camera, you mm-hmm. keep it tight, and you just. There's certain moves you just do that look, you know, they like just read good and they're not distracting. Right, right. Because you never want to take away from the lead singer. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, the Bette Midler thing, that's, was that a, is that backing up? I'm sorry, I wasn't familiar, I saw that on your website, I wasn't familiar with that. Yeah, um, that was really fun. Was that a tour, a tour of hers? No, she was doing a couple shows in New York and um, she, it was right before she was going to Vegas to do her Vegas run. Okay. And, but in Vegas, because the show is so huge, she needs real kick-ass right, right. dancers and singers and um and she finds them they're out there <laughs> they're like double threat you know triple threats because they're also fabulous looking you know right, right. it's Which not is, fair but you you being saying you're you know not much of a dancer how how much did that put it just a, a lot of pressure on you or it's just you knew how to put the work in and get it done well mostly that just knowing if i was going to survive and get through this i had to i had to really 
I had to figure it out. Mm -hmm. I had to get it together. I mean, we had long rehearsals, but then I'd go home, eat something, and they gave me videotapes, and I would watch them. Unfortunately, you're watching them backwards, which is really hard. And I would just practice, 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 like until like midnight to one o'clock, another five hours on my own, and then just collapse, and then get up the next day and go back to rehearsal studio. But um, yeah, when you when you don't have those chops, because I didn't, you know, that, I grew up in rock bands. I wasn't musical theater. So. Yeah. Where did you grow up? Ohio. Okay. Perrysburg, Ohio. Nice small town outside of Toledo. Okay. And then what brought you to New York? Well, have you ever been to Ohio? I have. <laughs> we know that song, Why Oh Why Did You Ever Leave Ohio? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I knew I had to get out of there. I mean, it was a great place to grow up as a kid, but um, I knew I had to go where there were, there were people doing a lot of creative stuff. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to go where all the freaks were, you know. And was were you was Misfits. it was it music for you or was it music in art just artists music art and you know no I was uh, doing music in high school so I when I I did go to college for one year in, o, in Ohio U and then I was like I got to get out of here I just got to get out of here I all I do is sing I try you know I met the musicians I was singing in the little coffee houses playing bands and and then I met a guy who uh, was going to school in Boston and he had um, he had connections in a Martha's Vineyard. So he brought, he just, he said, if you can, if you want to come out here for the summer, he goes, you'll be working. I'll, you sing with my band. Oh, that's cool. And you kidding me? I was like out of there as fast as I could. <laughs> he came, picked me up even. I threw my PA system in the, in the van and wasn't a boyfriend either. I mean, he was just a, you know, right. just a fellow musician that I'd met in my hometown when he was visiting. And in terms of making, well, at this point I wouldn't say making a living, but like, so you go to Martha's Vineyard. Are you paying rent or are you, you know? Yeah, I was paying thirty bucks for a room. Okay, and you're a little room the size of a phone booth. And when it, God bought a piece of foam, I always thought I was rich. <laughs> I was rich. You kidding me? I had my own room. Do come and go as I please. What what uh, what year are we talking? Let's say seventies. Okay. Because I was going to say, there's a, there's a That's great... That's before I got to New York, so I can't okay. lie. Right. Well, there's a great photo on your on your website, that it's and it's, it was the China Club with you and Nile Rogers and I think John Waite. Yeah. And somebody else. Was that, I don't even remember that night. It's so crazy. But is that, is that it was when so you, overwhelming. Was that when you... Is that the early days when you got to New York? Was that a few years in or... Uh, I think it was right, right at the beginning when things hadn't quite clicked, but they were just starting to click a little bit for me, like mm-hmm. work-wise. And um, I'd met a lot of musicians, so I was I was probably waitressing by the day or go-go dancing or something to make the money, and then I'd pay my bills, and then I'd hang out at night, ride my bike, and go to all the clubs and couldn't afford a cab, you know. Where were you living in New York? Oh, geez, all over. <laughs> I had a place above a fish market in, on 2nd Avenue in the East Village, and then I, I had a place... Uh, in Hell's Kitchen before it was cool, um, on the ground floor. It was, it was rough. I bet. Yeah. So you are moving to New York. Um, at, at that part of your life, are you thinking you're going to be you're going to front a band, or are you just thinking you want you just want to find work as a, as a singer? Well, I'd always fronted bands, and that my initial aspiration was to be just to be a solo artist, okay. but with a band or as a solo artist. Um, and when I came to New York, I started uh, meeting people and writing and formed a few different groups. I had a band called Little Red, another band called Ansonia. Um, and that was right before I started working with Joe Jackson. Okay. And when, um, but I just started doing That's around the time I started doing some studio work, too. Got a few calls for some record work and uh, commercials. Okay. And those are big, big, kind of big opportunities for you at the time? Well, yeah, that was a huge break because I always heard about them and I'd met a few people that had done that work. And I realized you could go in and sing for 10 minutes and make a, a pile of money. And when I was in Boston working, I was, I was singing, you know, three to four sets a night, six nights a week. Right. And that was really hard. But at that age, it was exciting and People would say, oh, yeah, we're adding the song to the set list, and there were all these great R&B tunes and rock tunes, and you just, I learned, that's how I learned. Mm-hmm. Learned so much because of that hard work. Okay. And what was the opportunity with Joe, with Joe Jackson? 
Um, Joe was recording an album at the time at A&M Studios, which I don't think exists anymore in New York. But um, he was working on an album, and with and he had hired Alan Foley, who was the original voice on Meatloaf. Okay. Um, I gotta know right now before you go, you know. And I remember hearing that voice and going, "Oh my God, who's that chick? I gotta know her. I gotta know her," you know, and because she just had such a cool sound. Anyway, she, she he hired her to sing some backup on the record, mm-hmm. and then. I think he wanted needed wanted another singer, and then my name came up, or she recommended me. Somehow I ended up in there, and then it, it came down to the Joe had a duet, a song that he wanted to make into a duet, but he'd already written it. It was in his key, and they were trying to find um, a girl who could sing sing the duet with him. And um, I didn't find out till later, but they had tried they tried everyone, Ellen and. You know, I I don't know if it's true, but I heard you know people like Belinda Carlisle, and they were trying to get Chrissy Hine, or whoever they yeah, you yeah. know like someone with more of a name to do it. And um, I don't I don't think like you know it was really weird. It was high. It was super high, and I had a super high belt at the time. And um, at that point, I, I think I, I was recommended. Someone recommended me and said, "I know somebody that can do that." Mm-hmm. And I went in and sang it. And um, it was it was really it was scary, but it was also completely thrilling, you know. <laughs> yeah, because uh, I was such a fan of his music, and it was such a cool record artistically. Are yeah. you at a place then where you're you're living off your music, like whether it's the jingles or the you know? I just work started or? doing the jingle work, and I started getting those really groovy blue checks that come from talent partners, and I'd heard about and. Um, yeah, I was singing. I was like some these guys, these great musicians and writers that I worked with. They, we were playing a wedding for one of his friends in a loft, and they said, "Hey, have you worked for this guy, Rich Luck? You should meet him." You know, and everybody, I don't. They were drinking, getting high in the bathroom or something. I said, "No, I've never worked for him, but I'd love to." And they went in. He goes, "Where have you been? Where have you been? How come I don't know you?" And he said, "Drop a drop a tape off Monday morning." And he hired me the next day, and I had my first big pen commercial. That's so funny. And then I saw the money. I went, oh, my God. <laughs> I'm doing exactly what I'm doing out here, but I'm actually able to pay my bills and take care of things, you know, take care of myself. Um, and then a gig like the Joe Jackson gig, does that, does that subsequently keep opening the next door? Or like, what's what, what comes next, or what's the next big opportunity for you? Well, that's interesting because Joe, we did a duet, and it was the single. It was uh, it was called Happy Ending, and it was going to be his single off the album. And Joe was really popular then, so to me that was a huge opportunity. And we even did the video. We shot a, a live video in Rotterdam, and that was going to be the video accompanying it. And that was the year he decided he was anti-video, and he wrote a letter to Billboard and said how much he hated videos because they told people how to feel right. about a song. And he thought that was completely wrong and anti-artistic and unartistic, whatever the word is. <laughs> and two, uh, it would, people should conjure up their own feelings from, from the music and the lyrics. And I was like, oh my God, I don't believe this. <laughs> so he wouldn't let them release the video. So it was released in England and maybe South Africa and different places, but it was never released as a single in the U.S. And he wouldn't even give me a copy of it. I mean, it just it just crushed me. I, I bet. Mean, it just it was like, and also because I really admired him, and I, it was so exciting to not be a commercial project, which I also was offered around the same time on CBS Records, but more of a pop thing, you know. Uh-huh. Um. At what point, or did you ever, it's, it's experiences like those, and I, I can assume, like, you know, you're going on auditions and, and doing all that, like, how do, you, how do you learn to thicken your skin? Or when do you learn to thicken your skin? Because I feel, I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like there must be these either up for jobs or up for opportunities that don't always come through, and you got to learn, you know, even when an opportunity did come through, like Joe's, you know, he ends up kind of sabotaging, you know, the success of that record. 
or the video. Yeah, but I'd already heard stories about how fickle the business, the music business was, and how people could sign their life away. And then if the person that signed you left the company, you could just be held up there right. for years. Right. And they just don't release you, but you can't move on. I mean, I'd heard those stories, so I knew anything was possible. Um, plus, doing any of the commercial work, I mean, you could do a demo, and you know, it could sound amazing. And then they'd had, uh, have other people competing, and then the ad agency would pick one over the other, but it maybe didn't make any rhyme or reason why. It yeah. was just completely subjective. So you just sort of have to let it go. But, you know, I, I mean, I left home at 18. I mean, you got to be pretty ballsy to... Yeah, and especially in New York. Got to New York with $20 <laughs> in my pocket, yeah. So um, I was pretty fearless and maybe a little dumb. Which, which I think, which is an attribute, I think. It actually is. Um, I always tell younger singers coming up, I'm always like, you got to be a little crazy and a little stupid because if I knew, knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have done half the things I did. Such as? What would you tell your younger self? What seems to be the, one of the main things, you know? I wouldn't have changed a thing, I, honestly, because... Everything taught me something, and everything got me to where I am today. Sure. And it was, there were a lot of struggles. I mean, after the Joe thing, it got even worse. It got even darker with Jim Steinman. So, yeah. So, Can we go there? <laughs> absolutely, because that was, that's, that was when it really peaked for me, and I went, you know what? This whole business is crazy, and I don't want to be crazy. So what, because I, I can see, I, I, I read it the wrong way. I thought it was like maybe you were the... You know, he's a songwriter. You came in to flesh it out as a demo, and then he shops around for somebody. You know, and it became a huge success for no, no, for he, Celine. So that, so yeah. tell me, let's hear the story. Well, he was the same thing. He was um, he he wrote this song. Um, it's all coming back to me now, and he uh, was looking for someone to sing it. And the two background singers that did all his recordings with Todd Rundgren, um, Eric Troyer and, and, um, um, we'll look it up. <laughs> Rory Dodd, Eric and Rory. I just haven't seen him in so long. Uh, I'd been doing some singing with them and in the studio and they said, Oh man, you got a lane, a lane can do this. So I went over to his manager's place, um, on, over on Riverside drive in New York and, uh, David Sonnenberg and Jim was there and I was, I was a little nervous but I also was like it just felt like I knew I could kill the song whatever it was and uh, they sent over a tape from the record uh, from the power station but it was the wrong key or something and he went oh, I can't believe this happened I got oh and he's calling them up and I said well just just play a little bit of the song I'll just sing it I mean just you know I'm telling the guy you know I'm, that's me right so he starts playing it, and I just start wailing. And then he's like, oh, do you know, you know, did you ever hear of Yvonne Ellison, that R&B singer? And I'm like, you're kidding me. I said, I worship that, that album. I've worn it out. And he goes, you know, stay with me, baby. He goes, I want it to peak when it goes, baby, baby. And I'm like, I can't believe you just said her name. Nobody, <laughs> nobody knows Lorraine Ellison, you know. And that was so cool. And then um, we just, I just kept going. I said, well, show me another part. Show me another section. And then next thing I know, he says, well, we're going out to dinner. Let's go. And then I went out and ate and drank with them. And I said, well, I guess I got the gig. I, I guess don't know. I well. <laughs> but um, it, was, it was the same thing where we, we just worked on, on the album for a long time. And he had other people involved in it. Ellen Foley. He wanted us to be a modern Ronettes. Okay. So um, this was, he was helming a project. So it's yeah. going to be, okay, a band. So it was called Pandora's Box. And it was four women three that existed and one that was sort of Deliria Wilde who was somewhat mythical someone he kind of created but but he wanted to be like the modern Ronettes okay. so rocked out and like and a, different characters different types of voices mm -hmm. so it was Foley me and um, these two other girls one that sounded kind of like Tina Turner and then this Deliria Wilde who I don't know if she was a real person but <laughs> anyway uh so I sang the song, and then that was we went over to England and we did the uh, we did the video shoot where they did Star Wars. That was pretty exciting to walk in there every morning and 
at dawn and have them put complete body makeup all over my naked body in the cold <laughs> because I had to lay dead on the tombstone while I was being attacked by <laughs> my ex-lovers. It was a crazy video because he did it with um, Ken Russell. Okay. Ken Russell, who's a legendary filmmaker. He did Women in Love and a lot of those, those right. um, art films. So the, re- the record came out, but one of the guys at Virgin Brit- England in UK, um, they, I, they had issues, I don't know. And then it was, it was supposed to be released in the US. Jim said that's the way they broke Total Eclipse of the Heart. Mm-hmm. So they broke it in the UK, and then they broke it in the US. Well, they played it in the UK, and then they switched up the song and started playing another song. And then it was never released. And it was three years later, he calls me up and says, I finally found someone that can sing the song in your key on that track. So they took my voice off, put Celine's on, and there's Todd Rundgren and Eric and Rory singing backgrounds. Oh my gosh. And I first time I heard it, I was in a taxi cab and I just heard I heard the downbeat. There were nights when the wind was so cold. And I was like, excuse me, I gotta get out. I just got out and started crying, like walking down the street. And everywhere I went, I heard it. And then she won the Grammy. And, oh, my um, gosh. And I get to sing back up on a few other songs on the album. <laughs> but it was, it was the, tr- he used, everything was exactly the same. He used the It was the same, the same track. track the same track, that. everything. And they just put her voice on it. Because hmm. I met her in the studio and she said, oh, I've been listening to you. I've been on tour in England, in Europe. And she said, wow, you did such a great job. And I said, well, have a nice hit. <laughs> Because I knew. What do you say to that? <laughs> she was at the top. It was like, how do you, you know, whether you like her or not. I mean, right. she's, she was a huge star, you know, with big pipes. So that's when I really tanked emotionally. And then mm-hmm. I, I, was, I was pretty crushed. So I found this really groovy therapist and started talking to her. What got you out of the funk? Oh, what got me out of the, the funk? Well, because I, I was still doing, doing uh, the, the commercial work. And um, after the Joe thing fell apart, and then a few years later, the Jim thing happened in the early 90s there. And um, I just, I said, I, I just was so depressed. And I felt like a failure, you know. I felt like I really, I really fucked up. I felt like, wow, I'm, I was supposed to, I was supposed to be this, everyone was like, oh, this, everything's going to click for you, and you're going to be this big star by the time you're 30. So I felt like a kind of a loser. Mm-hmm. And then also because my my mother never understood the business. And um, she was old, old world, old school. So it was like, you know, I felt like, oh, yeah, well, me and my big ideas. But then I was still working. And then I was, I sort of just fell back into, I felt really happy about that. I mean, really happy about that. And I started thinking less about being a solo artist. And then I just formed a few other bands after that for fun. Mm-hmm. Not looking to right. do um, to get a big deal. Right. I did a real quirky, artsy fartsy project called Miscellaneous with another woman, and uh, that was really fun. And I recorded it all on my own on like crazy eight track machine, and which I didn't know how, how to do it all, but I had to figure it out. And um, yeah, and then I was I just I decided I really wanted peace of mind. I wanted to be happy. Well, it's interesting once you, I mean, I hate to use the term, but it's like once you gave up on the dream, you know, I guess once you can, you know, I, I relax about it, for yeah. lack of a better word, yeah. and do it for the love of it. Well, I kind of got back into that. Yeah. Because at the time I was surrounded by everyone that was doing it and all these people were coming up and, you know, around me and, you know, it... You feel the pressure, like I got to make this happen. I got to make this happen, mm-hmm. and then um, it became less important. And that's when I just formed a few different bands. And then I went. Then I started another band, the Bev Leslies, which was just playing our favorite R and B soul tunes and like obscure, quirky songs, mm-hmm. just having a ball, you know. And then I just got back into singing, but I was still doing a ton of session work and TV work. I was doing Saturday Night Live and. I, the theme song for 30 Rock and <laughs> singing the national anthem at <clears throat> baseball games and right. hockey games and still doing commercials. So 
I was still making the money and having fun. Were, were those connections? It's, it's funny you go to Saturday Night Live because I, I think it's on your website, but you did like the Debbie Downer yes. theme song. You did Mom Jeans. Oh my God, it's a classic. It's gay, just like, I can't believe I did all that stuff. I mean, those are so funny. They're, they're such funny sketches. Was that, uh, was that just you were at, at the right place to do the right audition, or did you have somebody be like, oh, you should, you know? Well, no, I was working up there because I already, I, already, I already knew Lenny Pickett because when I moved to New York, I used to do a midnight jam down at Kenny's Castaways down on Bleecker Street. And um, Lenny used to show up. And I knew Lenny Pickett had been in Tower Power, which was this amazing funk band. And after I'd lived on the West Coast in, in Berkeley for a minute in San Francisco, I was like, Lenny Pickett's walking up on the stage with us. I was like, oh, my God, you're one of my favorite sax players in the world, you know. And, um, yeah, so he was doing that. But then I, then I met Cheryl Hardwick, who was an MD at the time at SNL. Okay. She'd also done on Sesame Street and stuff. So all these people, I'd get the calls, and then I'd come in, and then they just had all these skits. So if you went in and, you know, and I could do a lot of different things with my voice. So um, I could be a lot of characters or, you know, I could change up my sound. It wasn't just, oh, I went in and did one thing. Sure. And all that stuff. Plus, I love comedy, so that was so much fun. And then, you know, they were doing the ambiguously gay duo and... (laughs) I mean, it's just been, when I look back, I just can't believe all the, the fun, the fun opportunities. And sure. then working with Tina Faye and her husband, Jeff Richmond. I mean, just the... And those are opportunities that wouldn't have come up if you became, you know, this, no. this name or this part of this group. You know, they don't... They don't no, because then I would have gone off, things. and then you have to yeah. tour, and then you're, you're on the road yeah. all the time doing that, which I thought that was what I really wanted at the time. But then the other thing is I real, I'd worked with so many people, and I didn't – I met some of my heroes, you know, and influences, and some of them didn't seem that happy. So I said, well, maybe, maybe the stardom thing isn't all it's cracked up to be. So I knew I could go do these gigs, work with the best musicians in town, the best singers – Mm-hmm. And then I, I could leave and go home and do whatever I wanted. Right. But when you're an, a star and an artist, you, you never leave at that job. Yeah. You work, you work 24-7, which is a beautiful thing if that's in your DNA and you can do that. But, and I also love variety. Yeah. That's the other thing that scared me when they said, oh, when I was doing that CBS project, they were like, if you know, this could be a really huge hit. Now we want you to do a couple more songs, and I was like, "Do I want that dance song to be a hit?" Right. Like, I didn't want to be like, "Bless her heart, Taylor Dane," but I didn't want to be like having to sing that that kind of thing. You're, you're going to be locked into a, a style or a genre that you're known for. And I didn't want to end up in the Catskills singing at the you know the, <laughs> the, the resorts up there. I, I mean, that just didn't. Yeah. That didn't make me feel like I'd be happier. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot to weigh, you know, all those different elements. Yeah. And then being able to navigate it and not really have, I mean, I had a little advice, but not really. Yeah. It was mostly through trial and error and just watching and listening and seeing other people's behavior and how things, you know. Um. Hopefully this isn't an, an odd question, but given the name Rockonomics, I'm curious, and I'm a, you know, I I worked in advertising, so I had a steady paycheck, and it would go up a little bit every couple of years, and, but you were, you've been a freelancer, for mm-hmm. like a better description, for the better part of your career, and like you said, there's all this variety of stuff you get to do, whether it's, you know, sessions or advertising mm-hmm. or this and that, so if you were to look at your your salary over the years, would it be up and down? Would it be like, I had a good year, I had a bad year, I had a good year, I had a bad year, versus my salary would always be either level Right, because you were more like an employed, steady employment. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I always had, uh, my accountants just always went crazy. I mean, there was just so many, so many different flows of income from all all the different ad agencies and the different um, payment companies. Right. Because, um, you know, I got into the first call session world, which was, I never dreamed of it, but, you know, I did some really huge commercials that, that were pretty awesome. Right. 
and um, allowed me to buy a house or, you know, things that I never dreamed I could do, you know. Or the first time I bought a car, you know, it's like, I think I walked in with a bag of money. I was like, I don't want to owe anybody any money here. I like the, I like the irony to me the first time you bought a car was doing like a Ford jingle. Don't <laughs> Take, laugh. Taking that money and then buying it. Don't laugh. It was um, Chrysler. <laughs> Chrysler, Turismo Duster. Yeah, and they, they bought me out for a year. They said, we don't want you doing any of the car commercials. Oh, nice. And um, I was like, oh, I can do that for the right fee. I mean, they really wanted, I think they wanted, they wanted some star, but they couldn't, they didn't want to pay that money. So I was like, all right, so they, they, that's not enough for them, but if I get half of that, that's humongous. Right. You know, that's, for me, that was gigantic. And, you know, most people in my position never got to do a car commercial. Mm-hmm. And then a year, two, a year, when that one ended, then I got the Pontiac commercial. And it was me and Mark Cohn. You know, Mark? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Walking in Memphis, yeah. So we did, we did all, the, all of them. We did like 12 spots, and they just ran it all oh my year. Oh, gosh. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, uh, that's a good paycheck. Yeah, so a lot of that stuff. So it was really fun because you'd, you'd, you'd go in, you'd have a great time. All the engineers were great. The studios were great. Everything was just rocking. You know. Did you feel an effect of um, Napster and the whole shift to digital? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I and mean, then, even me coming from the advertising industry, I feel like our budgets shrank to where we probably wouldn't use oh, live yeah. singers a lot. and it's, It just it started to go away. See, I always saw myself being lucky for having entered the business at – I, I got the peak of the wave. And the people before me made even more because it was a smaller group of singers that were right. singing all the stuff. And the group before them, forget it. I mean, they were making, I mean, this was a, this was a long time ago. I mean, they were making a million dollars a year just running from studio to studio yeah. and then flying to Paris to buy shoes for the weekend and come home and then be back in time for Monday, you know. So I was like, whoa, this is crazy. So I did see it climb, climb, climb in the beginning and then all of a sudden, like you said, all those things came into play. Digital, everybody having, they started having home studios, yep. things like that. Then there was a, a big strike, the SAG. Right. The SAG strike. And um, once the ad agencies caught wind of, they could see how much they were paying out. Well, you probably maybe even know some of this because you were in that, that yeah. field. They, they could see, oh, well, there are all these other people that are willing to work way below scale yeah and let's just see and they got stuff done they got stuff done and that's when I said okay this is starting to so I just held on you know fortunately I was raised you know to be fairly frugal so I Mm -hmm. I was always saving my money and I didn't I didn't go crazy I didn't buy like fur coats and diamonds and stuff like some people I was like I wasn't into that I was into music you know so did you get into um (laughs) We'll, we'll eventually get to where you are now, but what led up to, to, to Cindy? Were you doing other tours? No, I, I mean, I did, when I did the Joe record, I toured Europe with him, and I didn't really go on the road that much because I didn't, I didn't have to. Right. I had enough work in town, and then also people kind of know, like, you know, once you, you kind of get into the, the uh, touring world, mm-hmm. You know, people kind of know that you're one of the, one of those singers, and um, you know, I have friends that work with. You know, one singer she worked with, you know, the Rolling Stones, but then she went on to work. I mean, before that, she was with Luther Vandross, and then she went on with with the Stones, and then after that, she went on to. I don't know if it was Lenny Kravitz, and well, that's not that's too soon because there's oh Steely Dan, and mm-hmm. then you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, that's that's a kind of another world. But then I was a I kind of dug staying home. You know, I get on the subway and then I, I you know I got my dog and my honey and you know and Sean and I we got a cool apartment in New York and and um, we combined two apartments and he put his drum soundproof drum studio in one of them and it was I, a dream. When did you meet your husband? I met him. Um, I think it was the first year he started doing SNL. Okay, and for those listening, that's Sean Pelton. Yes, Sean Pelton, drummer for Saturday Night Live Band. Yeah, he's done that, and um, 
he's recorded with everybody under the sun. He's got quite a discography. Nice. Great drummer. Let's get him on the show. <laughs> oh, he'd love it. Um, love it. So where were we? I'm sorry, I interrupted to talk about your husband, but you, you were saying, I think we were getting to how you eventually became uh, linked up with Cindy or, tour, or, or touring. Oh, right. Oh, well, that was interesting because all the other stuff had started to kind of decline. Right. Like you, we were talking about. And people, everyone had a home studio. Studios were closing all yeah. over New York. And um, no one, people couldn't afford the rent. Plus, they could get jobs done. They'd farm it out to someone at home with their garage band or whatever and do demos. And they were getting stuff done. So, um, unfortunately. Yeah. And, um, but also then, you know, like then a new, a new gang of people come in too. It's like, you know, I was the, I was the new wave threat for a minute, maybe. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, where'd this new kid come from who's taken the work away? And then all of a sudden, you see other people coming in and it's like, oh, time to hand the torch, you know? It's like, I was that once, and um, I saw it coming, and I just, um, there were also, at the same time I was doing in corporate jobs, they were, they were spending a lot of money on the industrials. Okay. So, you, you know, you get a show for a week, and you go to California or, or Hawaii and do, like, American Express, and then just goof off half the time, and then work, and stay, you know, in paradise, you know? I was like, that wasn't so bad. But then that money started to go away when, like... Uh, American Idol and all those shows came up because then everybody wanted to sing, you know, people, all the people that worked for the companies. So sometimes we just go in and help them learn songs, and then they wouldn't even use us on the, jo on the jobs. But I was like, you know what? It's all going away. I don't give a shit. I'm going to just I'm gonna have fun. I'm going to do my gigs with the bands in town, do whatever projects come along. And I was still getting called to do um, Letterman a lot. Paul Schaefer, you know, I was on his call list. Okay, that's fun. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So much fun. I mean, Billy Crystal, Martin Short. I mean, hilarious. Yeah, I saw that skits. on your resume. What did you do with Martin? Just you'd you you'd be you'd support oh, the skit? Whether... He'd do a skit and it would just be so funny. <laughs> uh, oh. It's the direction there. Don't laugh. <laughs> oh, no. And it was like, it, oh, it was just, the, you can't even look at the guy without laughing, you know. <laughs> well, we did um, Bastard in the Sand, you know, the Elton John song. Candle in the Wind. Right, right, right. So he changed all the words to Bastard in the Sand when um, Saddam Hussein was... Um, I was going to say, when you said Bastard in the Sand, I was like, I don't think I know that song. But yeah, so it? when they, they captured him, or killed him, right. right? So Martin was on the show, and he sat at a piano. He doesn't play. And he had candelabra. And he was, like, singing all emotional. about You know, and got to Bastard in the Sand, and then the, the scrim opens. And we all walk out in full, like, Navy seal, like... Uh, or army, yeah, you know, Navy SEAL, right, right, garb with machine guns and you know, black leather, you know, like vests and you know, we all come out with our guns and we're standing around him and I mean, and Billy Crystal, we did a hilarious Billy Crystal thing with Mark Shaman, the fabulous Mark Shaman. Oh my God, that was so funny. It was a uh, sunrise sunset from Fiddler on the Roof. It was the first time I, I did I did a bit on TV with no makeup on, and it's really scary. <laughs> but I said I got to be in character. I'm a peasant. So. But again, it goes back to these are great opportunities you otherwise wouldn't have had if the original plan, you know, made you a, you know, a pop idol years before. I wouldn't have had all these experiences. I would have had other ones that I'm sure would have been great. You know, I mean, but. I just I just took it all and and when I look back you know if I do look at my resume I'm like oh my god I forgot I did that and I sang with Al Green <laughs> and I was saying it you know this person and Dolly Parton and people I just dreamed about you yeah. know idols you know that I just looked up to Betty Lavette I mean just people that influenced me so much you know and uh, just fun rock bands too, you know, or Run DMC or Government Mule. Mm -hmm. just, I see you do a lot with them. Are you doing something in the future with them? Well, actually, they were uh, doing Dark the Side of the Mule. They were doing the uh, the Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Mule, which I did with them once um, at the Hunter Mountain Festival one summer. But um, I had a conflict anyway with Cindy, mm -hmm. so they were out. Just they just did a, a couple week run, I think. But now, is anybody you looked up to? failed to uh, 
you know, you know, there's always that saying, be careful to, you know, want to meet your heroes because they might disappoint. Yeah, yeah. So you don't need to name names. Yeah, I mean, there were a few a few instances <laughs> where when I was more naive and then you meet somebody and, and, and you know, maybe they weren't in the best place in their life at the sure. time and, um, and just feeling feeling brokenhearted, mm-hmm. you know, seeing the way the condition they were in and feeling so excited to be there, but then also feeling so almost angry because I didn't want to see that. Um, but then a lot of times, you know, you see people kind of pull it together then, and then then later down the line, you, you work with them again and they're completely charming and wonderful. And Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, yeah, but I get, I think the older I got, I started to understand more the, the stress that it takes for a lot of those people get jobs done. Like like the context that they're living in. Yeah. Or someone like Bette Midler can be very hard, hard on you, but. You know, and sometimes you know I've heard it be really mean, but you got to be thick-skinned and you got to just not take it personally. Right. And you got to bounce back, and then you just do the job. And if you can't, if you can't hang, you got to just get out. Right. How long have you been doing your current gig? I don't work with sin. I, you know, I, it's, I was trying to figure this out the other day. I, I can't even remember. It's been over twelve years. Okay. On and off. Right. She didn't need me for the blues tour. She didn't have any any background vocals on that when she did the blues record, and then she did the um, anniversary of the first album that had all those hits unreleased, and she didn't need me on that. And then she did the Detour album, the Nashville rock right. record, and then that had background vocals. So I was like, yeah, because I love country music too. So now I, she's toured the world. Have you been? Have you had had the chance to go to Australia and Japan? Yeah. Okay, that's fine. Oh, she's been great. She's been so generous. Um, We've gone to Australia three times, maybe, um, Japan, two or three. Uh, she took me all over Europe, uh, Scandinavia, um, Hawaii. You know, it's been really fun. It's been really fun. Can you sound like her? Um, a little bit. Well, let, I me, mean, let, me, let me ask the question. Like, the are there tricks to the trade that, you know, maybe... She's up there. I mean, you're both up there every night, belting it away. But you know, the voice is a very delicate thing, and you know, sometimes on a tour, you know, day after day, it's hard to do it. Are there times where you have to? It is your job that you need to kind of fill the fill in the blanks for a couple of songs or a song, or you know. No, no, Cindy's. She's very strong. I mean, she's a super strong singer, and she takes her 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 singing and her instrument very seriously. And she works, she maintains it, mm-hmm. and she, she works on it every day. I mean, she's... And I don't say that to diminish her at all. I just... No, but it's I, true of a lot I of artists. I know it's so demanding on an artist, how, no matter how good you are. I just want oh, to... Oh, no, it our, is. And I, I have friends that actually do do absolutely ghost the lead singers in, in, in shows. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and a lot of people, like, don't sing live. I mean, I went to see Madonna, and my friend was singing back up for her. And, you know... So, Lips, she lip syncs to a track. Does she really? So, a lot of the time, and then when she, because I could tell when she was singing live. Right. It's like, <laughs> and then I was like, oh man, what Nikki, my friend Nikki's so awesome. But, um, you know, I, you know, Cindy, I, I mean, a few times, you know, where she said, oh, let's flip the harmony right. tonight. Right. And then maybe we'd do it at sound check, and then she'd come up to me before and go, never mind, go back, go back to the way we always do it. Right. So I'm always ready. I'm always ready to be there for her. Um, our voices are different. Are different. My yeah. voice has a little more weight to it than hers, and she sings. She sings really high. Yeah. She well, she's got a unique voice. I think oh my her, god! Yeah, she's amazing. Her, makes her what? And she can what sing. She, she sings way up there. And I used to, I used to sing up there. I mean, they used to have me come in and um, and um, actually Tina Fey and Jeff Richmond had me uh, had me a. Uh, sit in for her and do when we did uh, it was a 30 Rock oh Give a Kidney with Alec Baldwin and everybody it was um, it was uh, Donate a Kidney and it was supposed to, the song was like We Are the World right. but they had all these stars and Cindy was one of them so I did I did some of the women's voices for them to learn the thing but I 
I don't remember if I was working with her yet. Oh, maybe I was, but I probably didn't tell her because I didn't want her to think I was making fun of her. <laughs> pound for pound, who's the best female singer in, in your book? I can't even answer that. How about male? I, you know what? It's, I can't even answer that. There's just too many. There's too many amazing singers in too many genres. Right. With some, everyone's got their own personality. I just, I, I couldn't pick one. Yeah. I just couldn't. Okay. It, it, it's impossible. I have too many. Fair enough. Fair enough. I have too many. <laughs> I mean, I can always come back and say, Etta James was one of my. Mm-hmm. You know. When I first heard her, just she just, you know, I, I felt it down, way down in my innards, you right. know, and I never got over that, you know. That's why I had to meet her and Betty Lovette, same thing. But you know, I could sit there listening. Oh, God, Aretha and Dolly. Yeah. Oh come on, you know, <laughs> Cindy. I mean, everybody. There's so many singers. It's like, and then there's opera singers, you know, and then there's Pavarotti, you know. <laughs> um. All right, before we get into the last five questions, where, what, do you, what do you want to be doing for the next five, ten years? Having a good time. <laughs> Is there anything specific to that? Like, do you want to stay doing stuff on the road? Do you want to, you know, who's an artist that you haven't worked with that you, you know, it's like, just make the call and I'll be there? Well, I always wanted to work with Annie Lennox, but That's interesting. I always loved her. And um, but I've got to sing with so many people. I mean, I really did have a list, and I I was able to go down and check a lot of them off because also doing Letterman and Saturday Night Live, you know, you get I'd get to sing backup for all these people when they were on the show. I get the calls. So, or Conan O'Brien, or even on Jimmy Fallon sometimes and right. stuff, you know. So it's like, and actually, Cindy, it's so funny. Right before I got the call to do to start working with her. She was one person that was on my list. I always said, you know what? It's so weird that I've never had the opportunity to ever sing with Cindy Lauper. And what brought that up? How did the how did that come to be? Um, all of my friends were in her band at the time. Mm-hmm. Sammy Marandino was playing drums. Steve Gabori was her MD and keyboard, uh, her keyboard player, and Bill was playing bass. And then Sammy called me one day and he just said, "Hey, you know, Cindy's going out for a month to do the two, True Colors tour, and she needs a singer." And, would you be open to it? He goes, I, I just told her, hands down, she should call you. And that you'd fit right in with everybody. Was it a quick process once you got an audition? Well, I went in. I was, you know, it was kind of nerve-wracking, you know, because, you know, it was only me, you know. It wasn't like I was with a group of singers, you know, so I was kind of like, yikes, under the microscope. But um, I knew people that had worked with her before, and I talked to them about, you know, I just said, oh, you know what, how was it? You know, I said, oh, just, just go and be cool and... Just go with the flow and you'll be fine. And um, she hired me. And then after that, she'd call me up and go, hey, what are you doing? You want to go to Japan? <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, twist my arm. And then. Your, so, yeah, your impression just, of her is almost as good as Williams. Yeah, you're seeing down Yeah, so it's like I've gotten to travel with her a lot. And then when I'm not traveling, I've traveled either for other gigs or on my own. I mean, I've gone to India three times and I just got back from Morocco and. I love to travel, but um, I think I did a little too much traveling this year. <laughs> India and Morocco and this in one year, it's a bit much. I'm like, where am I? What language? Yeah, what, what time of day? Yeah. All right, uh, final five are the same five questions everybody gets. And first one is, if your house or, for New Yorkers, apartment is on fire, what you run back in to get that's music-oriented, like a yes. memento or... Something that has a profound meaning to you. Nothing. I got it. It's all. It all. It's all my experience. It's all like right here. Okay. It's like, That's a good answer. That's a, I haven't heard that one. I, there's no. There's no. There's stuff. No material possession. That. That. There's no stuff. I yeah. just. I don't. I've never. No. You know. I've got autographs and photographs and stuff, but. Not at all. All in memory. It's just. It's all like, and it's mostly visceral experiences I've had that have like you know, touched me and moved me, mm-hmm. you know, like being part of the concert for New York City after 9-11 yeah. with Keith and, and, and... With Keith and Mick. I mean, I cry, you know, it's like, Carly, stop crying, and singing Wind Beneath My Wings with Midler 
at Yankee Stadium a week after mm-hmm. with the jets flying over the yeah. no-fly zone. I mean, and the baseline lined with roses, red roses. I mean, I just, I cried the whole time. I mean, I couldn't even, I didn't, I don't know how she could sing. Where were you in 9-11? I was actually doing like a corporate gig down in Princeton. We left that morning at 6 o'clock. We're driving. Everyone was sleepy, the other singers. And um, I said, hey, Nikki, hey, Lorenza. I said, look at the Trade Center. I said, doesn't that look eerie today? Look at the, there's this weird haze around it. Everybody went, yeah, yeah. And then we just kept going. And then we were down there rehearsing, and then people, somebody started talking about something happening. And I said, that's not even funny. I said, don't joke. And then everyone's like, it's not a joke. I mean, go out. There's a TV in the lobby. Go look. And I went out, and I was like, and Sean was home, and the dog, and. Where were you living at the time? Where was your apartment? Was your apartment in Manhattan? Yeah, it's the same place, Ninth Street, off okay. of University, right by um, Washington Square Park. Oh, great! So we could see the Trade Center. Oh, he yeah. saw it come down. Yeah. yeah. So that and twelve, twelve, twelve was a great one. Like those experiences of being there with Roger Waters, and then all the doing all those songs and. Eddie Vedder. Yeah, that's insane. Singing those songs. You know, I, <laughs> that's why it's, it's not about the stuff to yeah, me. Yeah, it's about yeah. these moments and then looking out at the garden and, you know. Playing the garden, period. Yeah, I mean, we're singing. The first time I sang there was with Joe Jackson singing the duet. Oh, really? That's funny. Oh, my God, yeah. I twirled around. I was barefoot. I my Balinese temple doll outfit on and <laughs> he just laughed. Uh, question number two, if we were at liberty to give you a check for a million dollars for you to give to one charity, which charity would get it? Mm. Wow. Can't split it up? <laughs> Bummer. So that's the only thing that makes it, the question difficult. Ah, oh, shit. I know. It's so difficult. Uh, I mean, I, 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 was gonna, I was thinking Puerto Rico, you know, because they're so... Ignored. Me- ignored, just and they're part of our country and they're so ignored. But I think in general, I would just say, you know, the food banks, you know, mm-hmm. like New York City Food Bank. I mean, you know, I've gone to some of those events with, with Rachel Ray and people, and I've just seen the work they do, and I'm like, I can't believe there's so many people hungry. Yeah. Like, that shouldn't be. And I mean, it's a basic need. Yeah. And that's very overlooked in this country. I, think, I don't think people realize how many people are going hungry at night it's it's unfathomable and then the rest of the world i mean i just and then um, when you see the waste you know and portions yes you go to a restaurant and it's like i can't eat that <laughs> you got to share that's it. the beauty of what is the second harvest is that in is that what it's called second harvest where they i don't they don't take the leftovers but they take the stuff that's not yeah. used in the kitchen they pick it up in the middle of the night and then yeah. they repurpose it for the next day's meals for the homeless yeah yeah, that's that's great. You know, I just I just City don't think Harvard. anyone should be hungry, man. Yeah. I just think that's so ridiculous. Yeah, amen to that. Uh, let's, it, let's lighten it up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Question three is: uh, What would your? I mean, I don't know how lightening up this would be. What would your walk-up music be to the Pearly Gates? <laughs> oh, so you're dead, funny. but you know, yeah. it turned out well. It's well, heading, it's I heading think, in the right direction. I think I got. I think I, I'd have to have. It's going to be a segue, if that's okay. So when I'm when I'm approaching, it's going to be like something really dramatic, like um, Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings, okay. or or like Pavarotti singing Newsom Dora or something. <laughs> and then the minute the gates open, because they're going to open, because I'm going to walk right through them, right. And the minute that happens, it's going to be a brass band, New Orleans brass band. Okay. <laughs> and it's going to be a big-ass party. And I'm going to see all, all my family and all the people, my fellow musicians that have, that have died and passed and people that have influenced me. and, um, and jam, jam for eternity. Yeah, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Okay. So it's got to be, but it's going to be a dramatic start. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, what would be stuck on repeat in your hell? The worst, almost any commercial I ever say, <laughs> any jingle, but maybe the, maybe the tampon commercial. That you sang? Yeah. Tampax. Okay. Yeah. Do you remember the... You gotta trust somebody. <laughs> I'm like, really? <laughs> and then they had a model, you know, on, on, right. in the film Doing going like, 
this little skinny model who didn't look like that voice would come out of her at all. And it was so funny. And I was like, wait, she got paid to do with my voice. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I think a commercial, because those are the things you could never get out of your head when you yeah. walk out of the studio and you just keep singing it. You go to bed, you'd be singing it, singing it. It would be like, oh, I'm going to go nuts. Yes, the earworms. Ear you, you understand. I do. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I, I, thankfully I didn't do that commercial. That wasn't my uh, composition. Uh, last question. What is your favorite concert that you have witnessed as a fan? Ooh, so many different versions of it. I mean, there's like the most emotional one, then there's the most outrageous fun one, you know, and then there's like the most intimate one that just... Can you name those three? Yeah. Um, I was really, really young, and I was able to sneak out and go see Janis Joplin was passing through Toledo, Ohio. Oh, wow. And, Fantastic. Um, and I just was wearing those records out. And she was such a... a a, a strong influential force at that time in my life when because I had never heard a woman sing like that and then dress like her and act like her and just she was so abandoned and wild and I just I remember going she was at the University of Toledo or something and I, I got in and I just remember crying the whole time because <laughs> it was so emotional she was she represented what I aspired to be and also the freedom of getting out and being a woman on stage free and powerful and sexual and fun and mm -hmm. just just eating it up you know uh, she it was so it was so powerful um so I don't remember a lot of it cuz I cried the whole time cuz it was it was you know how when you're young you don't those that never happens again right because you know too much mm -hmm. and you experience things differently so I I'll never have that feeling again, that feeling of possibility, you know. Right. And then I just saw Pink last time she was at the garden, and I just thought, oh, my God, she's so charming. This crazy woman is flying through the air singing upside down at the top of her lungs. I mean, all over the, the Madison Square Garden on trapeze. I'm, it yeah. was really, really, I mean, I was jumping up and down screaming. It was so fun. <laughs> And then the intimate show, I'd say, is up close and personal. When I watch Betty Levette sing, just sing with her piano player mm -hmm. at Joe's Pub, and just, you could hear a pin drop, and she sang Springsteen's Philadelphia. Oh, wow. And <laughs> the way she phrased it, and the way she spoke the words, and, you know, you were just... You're right there. You know, it's just, it's so naked and raw, and it was so beautiful. And it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about about being free to open yourself up and let people in. And that's the whole, that's what Cindy's so beautiful about. Because when she's on stage, it's just like, right. it's just wide open. You know, right. it's all heart. Well, that's nice to hear. Heart and guts. <laughs> a lot of that's, hearts that's, and guts. That's a good way to end it, heart and guts. That's, yeah. that's, what, it, that's what it takes to. Yeah. You really, that's, Get that's through the it title all. of it. Yes. I like that. I like that a lot. Hearts and, well, heart and guts. Elaine, thank you so much for taking your time and talking with me. I appreciate it. You're wonderful. It. You were such a pleasure, and you made it so comfortable thank for you. me. <laughs> no, really. Really. All right. A big thank you to Elaine Caswell, as well as to my two previous guests, Alex Nolan and William Whitman from Cindy Lauper's band, who all took the time on their day off from the Rod Stewart Cindy Lauper tour to sit down and talk with me. They also provided me with tickets and guest passes that allowed me to bring my eight-year-old daughter to her very first concert, which was a priceless father-daughter experience. So thank you, Elaine, Alex, and William. Doing the show has allowed me to meet some truly wonderful artists who are just great people as well, and these three certainly are that. So thank you again. Okay, as for the hard sell of the show, please subscribe, rate, and comment on iTunes. Spread the word to your music-loving friends and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be back again next week with the drummer from a rock, hip-hop, funk, reggae band from my neck of the woods in upstate New York, so tune in for that. Episode 34 is closed for business. Good night, Cleveland. Good night, Cleveland.